Yes, well, this, um, I'm on the wrong page. This Kotapada uh, is talking about the three kinds of cells that he's um, interested in. And it is really the crucial question that we, he is concerned with and that everyone that uh, gets to know about the Buddha's teaching is concerned with. Is there a self and is there, or is there not a self? And if there is a self, uh, what does it consist of? And if there's not a self, why do we think there is? I mean, this is a crucial question, and Potapada is uh, very much into that question. So he, he's postulated three different kinds of cells, which the Buddha quite agrees with, because they are the three, one should could say, the three levels of consciousness which are most um, prominent. The first one, the material level of consciousness, which concerns the gross body, but all materiality. And then we have the mind level of consciousness, which concerns our mind and all other states of consciousness, which is on the realms of existence, <coughs> the deva realms, where the body is so subtle that it doesn't look like our body. And then there's the formless realm, which are the Brahma realms, the four highest realms of existence, where the consciousness is, of course, the highest consciousness, and they are called the formless realms. So Potapada has uh, postulated that there could be a, uh, uh, a type of self, which is gross, then there's another one which could be mind-made, and then there could be another one which is formless, which are the three levels of the three realms in their um, most, uh, without any details. These are the three levels without going into details. And the Buddha agrees with that, and this seems to be also a traditional way of dividing up states of consciousness. So I'm going to reread the last bit that I read yesterday. But I, the Buddha says, but I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong. And one gains and remains, gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super knowledge. So what the Buddha is saying that he's teaching a way of practice. And the word doctrine, I'm not terribly fond of, because to my mind, it denotes uh, a theory, a doctrine as a theory, whereas the Buddha is adamant that he's teaching a practice. So the translation for the word uh, doctrine is probably, I don't know, I don't have the Pali here to look at, but it's probably the translation of the word Dhamma. So I would rather say I teach a practice, which is far more in line with what we're doing. I teach a practice for getting rid of the gross acquired self. In other words, I teach a practice for getting rid of this idea that we have about the self. We have acquired the idea, we've acquired a self. And this practice is for the, to get rid of defiling mental states, to make them disappear. and Faith tending to purification can grow strong. 
and then one gains and remains the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now. Now the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now is insight. The word panya, which is the Pali word for wisdom, denotes also vipassana, denotes insight. And it's very often in English we often say inside wisdom. It's not just because you could say wisdom could denote all sorts of things. We could have wisdom about a lot of things. But in the Buddhist terminology, the word wisdom always means inside wisdom. So it means that one has gained and remains in the purity and perfection of perfect insider here and now, and having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. So the word super-knowledge, again, I mean, it's a, it's a translator's choice. Um, it could just as well say, having gained, uh, realized and attained it by one's own super insight or something like that. It's um, certainly not concerned with knowing more. It's certainly concerned with having insight. That's all this is talking about. Now the self, obviously, it can only be understood the no self can only be understood through insight. There's no other way that one can do it. However, it's very interesting that the first part of the sutta, as it usually does in other suttas, goes first through all the um, jhanas and explains how one gets on with the uh, with the jhana, uh, how one, the results one has from the jhanas. And then comes all this question about the self, and then, of course, the Buddha talks about purification. Now, the purification of defiling mental states has always two aspects. One is the automatic aspect through the meditative absorption. That's an automatic uh, purification. And the other one is one's daily work in purifying one's mental and emotional state. And that means that one practices continuously. It doesn't mean that one sits with crossed legs continuously, it just means that one practices continuously in order to purify. Now these states grow stronger and the defiling, the defilement grow weaker and because of that insight is possible. It's not possible to have proper insight without this purification, which takes place in a very, um, very distinct manner and a very strong manner through the jhanas, but has to be reinforced through in daily living. I'll just finish with this um, uh, paragraph and then go on to talking about insight. Now, Potapada, you might think perhaps these defilements might, these defiling mental states might disappear and what might, that doesn't make sense, excuse me, perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear and one might still be unhappy. Oh, okay, there's a little drop in the middle. And this now Potapada, you might think that even if these defiling mental states disappear, one might still be unhappy 
In other words, one might have gained purification and still be unhappy. That is not how it should be regarded. If the defilements disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develops. Tranquility, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. And that is a happy state. Now, the tranquility again refers to the jhanas and mindfulness and clear comprehension to our daily practice, which is, of course, much supported through the meditation. Now, obviously, the Buddha does not go into the ways of getting rid of the defilements here, but he does so in many other places, and so we might as well have a bit of it at this point. There are many other suttas where he goes into exact um, instructions. Now, the defilements of our mental state can only disappear through insight. They can disappear means uprooting. They can only be uprooted through insight. We can certainly cut them down. And that's what we do in the jhanas. We cut them down where their roots become feeble. Because if you cut weeds down, their roots become feeble. And you can e- it's easier to uproot them. But the uprooting itself can only happen through the inside. Because the inside changes one so drastically that the defilement sort of loses its ground, it loses its uh, soil to grow in, it gets lost. There's such an upheaval within that the ground for the defilement is lost. But naturally, it is a, a gradual process so that one has to work on them. And inside, just as the jhanas have eight steps, inside has also many steps. And sometimes they are numbered nine, and sometimes they're numbered thirteen. And uh, we'll see that uh, we could even divide them up further. It doesn't matter how many we get to. The main thing is that we actually practice them. And the very first one is always the understanding that mind and matter, body and mind, are interdependent, interrelated, but separate. That they are not, that we are not one solid lump. And that is very easily done through meditation. All we have to do is watch the breath, and become aware of the fact that the body is breathing and the mind is watching, and that it's impossible to do the opposite. It's so simple, it defies description, and yet 99% of humanity, or even more, never think of it. It's impossible for the mind to breathe and for the body to watch. Absurd, isn't it? It's got to be the body breathing and the mind watching. Now, when we notice this for the first time or for the several times, it must eventually have an impact. So that the gross body, this gross body, is not so much anymore considered me. Because after all, it doesn't know anything. 
it's just breathing. The mind knows it all. So we don't like to be, from our own pride of person, de-identified with something that doesn't know a thing. It's just a lump. So we gradually, and this is actually what the Buddha is referring to here, we gradually lose the identification with the grosser until we finally identified with the more subtle and eventually may be able to let go of that too. Potapada in this discourse is not able to let go of it um, because, as the Buddha says, he is not uh, steeped in the Buddha's teaching, which he said already earlier. But that doesn't matter. We can still look at it as long, uh, along those lines to see what is actually happening. So as we see those two, the gross acquired self is not so much anymore in the foreground, this body thing, not so much in the foreground. And the next thing which we can very easily see, which should present no difficulty at all, is the rising and passing of the breath. It comes and it goes. Now, obviously, it keeps coming and going. And this is our problem. Impermanence is covered over by continuity. Now, obviously, we have been tiny little babies and little children and bigger children and young people and older people and look totally different, think totally different, feel totally different, react totally differently, and yet have the um, absurd notion to identify ourselves with this person from the moment of its birth to now, that this is me. Because there has been continuity in memory. And continuity possibly also in living in the same spot. People who have lived in the same spot all their lives have such difficulty with anything that is other than self that they probably can't do it unless they're spiritually very advanced. Uh, that the location which has happened from birth to now helps them to identify with this continual existence of an acquired self, a notion, which acquired means a notion, a notion of self, which is even worse when one has not moved away from this one spot. But everybody else also uh, identifies with this notion because it's been continuous in memory and there has always been, I mean, there are lapses, of course. Nobody remembers exactly what happened when they were three years old. But they can remember something or they can ask their parents. And so there is this continual thread as if there was somebody. And in reality, there's not, nothing but a continuation of moments a breath moment, a mind moment, a feeling moment, a moment which has um, the body coming together and falling apart, moments, all moments. And that's why the word khandas, which are what we're made up, made up out of, not so good English, but never mind, 
Um, it's actually literally translated as heaps. They're all heaps which are coming together and falling apart all the time. But because it keeps on happening, now with the breath it's very simple. It keeps on happening all the time. We don't even notice it unless we're asked to meditate on it. Then we at least notice it and we try to stay on it so that we become nice and calm and tranquil and have some nice state. But we refuse to notice that this thing is totally impermanent and should anybody interfere with our breath for more than two minutes, we'd be dead. And it's not so difficult to have somebody interfere with it. But nobody pays any attention to that. It just comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And we dread the moment when it no longer comes because then we'll be a cause. So this continu continual movement, which is the feature of the universe, the continual movement, overshadows anicca, impermanence. And because of that, it's very difficult for us to see, besides the fact that we don't want to see. Because what one really wants to see, one can see. What one really wants to know, one can know. And what one really wants to do, one can do. But we don't like it. Because it gives us a feeling, if we haven't practiced long enough yet, it gives us a feeling of being very fragile. Any moment can be finished. Well, we are. That is the truth. And it can be finished any moment. And if we could just get that through our skulls, we'd make far less mistakes because we'd be able to let go. We'd be able so easily to let go because any minute can be finished. So what are we hanging on to? To our identification system of who we are, how clever we are, how beautiful or how ugly, how um, young or how old, uh, all the things we know or maybe what we yet want to know. We hang on to all this as an identification system in order not to see the truth. The truth of it is that it's a very fragile existence, extremely, extremely fragile. And as we go along in our um, inside path, we do come to that point where we see it. But now we're only at the very beginning where this is the second step, where we're supposed to see impermanence in ourselves. Now this impermanence that the breath produces so well for us can of course be noted in everything else too. It's not just in the breath, but let's just stay with the breath for a moment. Or alternatively, let's say the thoughts that arise instead of watching the breath. Well, every thought that arises has to come and go. And yet we identify with it. We believe it and we very often react to it by either speech or action or emotion, emotional reaction. So whatever thought arises, we take it for the gospel truth. Because of the identification system, nothing could be more absurd because five billion people on this planet are producing then five billion gospel truths. 
nobody thinks the same as the next star. The absurdity of it all is so immense that one wonders why we don't catch on to it. Well, we don't catch on to it for one simple reason, and that's bhavatana, the craving to be, our survival syndrome. It makes us feel very, yes, not only fragile, but it also makes us feel terribly unimportant and uh, uh, terribly small and that we don't really think the right thing, so we don't want to know about it. But if we watch the um, movement of the, of the thought without any judgment, without judging that this is uh, so and it's not so, but just watching the movement, we can't help but see that it is something that arises and passes away. And even though there might be ten, a hundred, a thousand of them, each one arises and passes away. Now, if we do this often enough, and deliberately enough, eventually we get a different feeling about ourselves, a feeling of transparency, a feeling, feeling of... Um, a lack of solidity. It's a, a feeling of not having to do to get to become to be because it's all moving constantly. Well, that's the very first result of, of becoming aware of impermanence in oneself. One can be helped by that, in that, sorry, in that by also watching the impermanence outside of oneself, in nature. We've got lots of nature around us here, very um, useful. Dead leaves, growing, growing grass, um, dead trees, uh, things which are half-grown, everything having a movement in it. There's nothing that is stationary out there. We can see it quite clearly that the whole of nature is moving towards being, but not succeeding, so things die also, just like we do. It's very helpful to watch the um, impermanence in all these things that surround us in order to give us more of an idea of it. Because when we only watch ourselves, we may even have resistance to that. A person who does the jhanas fairly well has no resistance to that. In fact, they're quite happy to watch it because the jhanas need, obviously, a reduction of the self-notion. Otherwise, one can't give oneself totally to something that does not at the time have any support system for the ego. I mean the support system of the ego arises again after the jhanas, but in order to get concentrated, even just barely concentrated, needs a letting go of the thought process that the ego produces. And therefore a jhana meditator is very much helped by the more insight into this um, impermanence is, uh, uh, achieved, the easier it is to get into the jhanas. 
by the same token, the easier one has the way in the jhanas, one easier, the easier one can see the impermanence. When we have an, an inkling of arising and ceasing, we also have an, a natural inclination to investigate outside of meditation. Not just in, in the meditation, we probably have an inclination to become nice and peaceful and calm, and which is only uh, right. But outside of meditation, it's extremely important to notice this inclination for investigation, and an intelligent mind has that. And uh, it's only an intelligent mind that wants to do this anyway. Um, and this investigation can be directed towards any one of the three characteristics. It doesn't have to be impermanent, although that is the mainstay of every meditator because it's so easy to see. It's so simple and one can't argue with it. Now the other two one could possibly argue with them if one has enough skeptical doubt and likes arguing and some people do love it <coughs> one could argue with that. The other one is Dukkha. Now Dukkha is always concealed and uh, overshadowed by change, by movement. Now that means that when our dukkha is there, be it physical or emotional, mental, we try to do something else. This is where restlessness arises from, to get out of dukkha. And the more we, or the less we realize what's going on, the more restless we are. When we realize this is only dukkha pushing us, we can often counteract the restlessness by investigation. Now, the movement which we do to get away from dukkha in physical uh, terms is moving one's body. It hurts for our moving. And in outside of meditation, it would be considered foolishness is not. Of course, one moves if one something hurts naturally. It's so go one moves. But mentally, emotionally, we have devised many things in order to get out of it, or at least temporarily out of it. We change our place where we are. If we are at home, we might come to a meditation course. If we are in a meditation course, we'd like to go home. If uh, we have a job where we have a fair bit of dukkha, where we try to change that, <coughs> get rid of the job and find a new one. If we live in the country and it's terribly hard work and very hot and unpleasant, we will try to move to the city where we can have air conditioning in the house. After a while, the air conditioning is not very pleasant anymore, so we move back to the country, and so on. And then if we don't like it where we are, we move to a different country. I mean, this is also not so difficult. We can move to a different country as uh, possible. If we're not very happy with our relationship, or we try to get rid of and get a new one. And, uh, you know, the changes in the relationship is always a 
metaphor, trying to get out of one dukkha and into a new one, but uh, anyway, <laughs> we, we think it might help, you know, until we've done it often enough. <laughs> so this, this is our way of trying to get out of dukkha through movement. And because of that, we conceal the dukkha. We do not see it clearly, but have the notion that, well, this time it didn't work. But now I know all the pitfalls, next time I'm going to do it right. And then next time it doesn't quite work again, but it may have been a little less book. I say, see, I'm getting up on the ladder, I'm going to find it. I'm going to do it so cleverly, I'm not going to have any book. Everything's going to work. Relationship's going to be all right. The boss is going to be all right. I'm going to get along with my parents beautifully. The diet's going to be all right. The yoga, everything's going to be all right. Well, I mean, it never happens, but one continues to move from one thing to the next, and that conceals the whole business. Because of that, we don't know, and don't want to admit, of course, that dukkha is. It just is. And that's all there can be said about it. It just doesn't come together without it. And, of course, when we accept it, naturally, we have far less dukkha when we accept that. Because it's no longer that we are having a monopoly on it. It's universal. Until then, people usually think that they have a monopoly on specific kinds of dukkha, which happens to be theirs, and as it is theirs, it's particularly unpleasant because they're having it. But that's also a fallacy of thinking. It's an acquired thought. It's totally untrue. Everybody's got it. We give it different names, naturally. But it only goes away through insight. It doesn't go away through movement. And this self that this Potapada is so interested in, all these three selves that he has postulated, well, that is concealed through compactness and solidity. And particularly the gross acquired self, the body. Well, it's very compact, it's very solid, and it's got to be something. How can this be nothing? It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? And Potapada is having a dickens of a time with it. He has just as much trouble as everybody else trying to understand why this body, which is so solid, so compact, can be seen, touched, has all sorts of unpleasant, unpleasant sensations, should not be him. If it isn't him, who is it? So therefore, the Buddha stipulated already earlier in this uh, discourse that this uh, gross body consists of the four elements and is kept alive through solid food. But obviously this isn't enough for Potapada. He doesn't get out of this self medicine at all. And it is quite um, doubtful whether this is enough for anyone. In this particular sutta, we must remember that the Buddha is not trying to convince him of the um, utmost insight, because he is a wanderer from a different sect and needs to be brought to this understanding slowly. But we can do it more, more in more detail. So 
the four elements which we have already uh, uh, discussed as a meditative possibility, as mindfulness of the body, and which then translates to all the outward things, also is one way of not seeing ourselves so solidly. Impermanence is the other way of seeing that everything that uh, happens to us is completely fleeting. It doesn't have any solidity. It's not just the body that doesn't have the solidity. It is also the, the mind moment. Everything keeps coming and going. So with the body not having the solidity, we have to become mindful enough to recognize meditatively the movement, the constant movement that's in the body because of the particles that are coming together and falling apart. Because otherwise, if we don't experience that, we may believe what the Buddha said because we think, well, he must have known, but it doesn't help. We still have this feeling of, I'm sitting here and I want to get enlightened. But I is never going to get enlightened. It's just not possible to do it that way. So I am sitting here and I'm a solid heap and a solid lump and that sort of thing is a natural way of thinking and looking at oneself. But anatta, non-self, is uh, concealed by this compactness. Now our thoughts <coughs> also appear to be extremely compact. They seem to have some solidity to them if we do not watch their impermanence. Because they seem to be our life. What else is there except all this thinking? That's life, isn't it? We think it up and then we try to follow it through. And half the time, well, 90% of the time, we get into a, a bind about it. Because what we've thought about and what we're trying to act out, it will never come together. It just isn't possible. So, the, uh, but the thinking seems to have a great deal of um, reality to it. We don't see it as coming and going. So this reality is then the compactness with which the non-self is concealed. However, there is another way of attacking this problem which the Buddha does not tell Potapada here, but I'll tell you, because it's not a secret. He tells another Buddhas. And here he doesn't tell him because it just goes too far for somebody who is not really his follower. We cannot really investigate something that doesn't exist. In other words, we cannot investigate non-self. But we can investigate that what we believe exists, namely self. That we can investigate. Now that it's an illusion is something that we only come to after having investigated it. But we believe in it solidly and strongly, otherwise we wouldn't do what we're doing. So that need can be investigated. So just as I have already explained the different ways of analyzing this body into its 32 parts, into the four elements, in the same way, 
we can investigate and analyze the mind. And this is the next step on the inside path, that we actually take the four mental candles as our meditation subject if we want to do inside meditation. And we must be clear, and I've said it before, I will say it again, of the difference between calm and insight. Now here in the Sutta, like in all Suttas, the Buddha says first along the calm path, then to insight, because now it's all about self, and self is something that we can only investigate with insight. However, it's not an invariable rule at all. A little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight. A little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm. A mind which is geared towards thinking and likes to analyze and has a great deal of interest in that sort of um, endeavor should go to inside path, uh, inside methods, I should say, inside methods as often as it wishes. In between do calm meditation. The person who is really interested <coughs> in becoming calm, and that is the one thing that they want to do, they should spend more time going along that way. Each person needs to find their own pathway. The Buddha gives instructions. I can elaborate on them, detail them, analyze them, but one has to find one's own way of doing it. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, there is always the, um, the self, self-help. It's never reliance on a guru. It's always the reliance on one's own way and understanding how to do it. Naturally, one needs to ask questions, naturally one needs instruction, one needs guidelines. But everybody has a different tendency and also different bodies which are capable of different things. A weak body cannot do what a very strong one can do, and the same with a mind. So we need to find our own pathway. A person who likes to analyze and likes to investigate should do many of the inside methods. Everybody should do them sometimes. Everybody should sometimes do the calm meditation. But one should always know which one is one is doing. One shouldn't um, confuse the two. It's very simple. Staying on the breath is to go towards calm, seeing that the breath in permanence is going towards inside. The same breath, but it's doing two things. Huh? Is that quite clear? That's a very important point. Is that quite clear? Was there any question about that? Yes? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, that means that you have to do half an hour of one and half an hour of the other, no? I mean, you don't want to do one minute of this and one minute of that, do you? So you do half an hour calm, and after that you can do half an hour inside, or you do it the other way around. 
if you feel that your mind needs the investigation first, then you do the insight first and then the calm. It doesn't really matter that much which one one does first. The only thing that matters is that one does them. And surely you can do it in one sitting, certainly. And if you sit an hour, you can do half an hour this and half an hour that. But you don't switch around. Because when you switch around, it's impossible to do calm. There's no way you can become calm. The four mental aggregates, the four khandas, the four mental khandas. And in this case, the word um, consciousness is not uh, awareness, but it's a sense consciousness. And the feeling which arises in one and the perceiving, the perception which is uh, then arising. And then the mental formation, the thought process. Now, with this perception, there's another interesting aspect which I haven't mentioned before. I'll mention it now. In this sutta, we have heard the word perception being used as state of consciousness. And it is an arbitrary way of translating. I mean, the translator himself says in the back that, you know, others have translated it differently. But the word perception is being used as states of consciousness. And it is quite a good translation. Because in our khandas, in our mental khandas, when we come to the perceiving, we are actually perceiving according to our state of consciousness. Now I'll give you a, an example. When somebody comes and doesn't greet you politely, you might perceive that person as an oaf, very impolite. You know what an oaf is? <laughs> an oaf, and I know, I know. And stoffers. <laughs> a similar word. <laughs> that person is not greeting you politely. And then your consciousness uh, is the perception, which is your state of consciousness, is immediately on a negative level. I mean, this is an oath, obviously, not greeting politely. But you may also, another person, may also not be be greeted politely, and the perception is so much dukkha in that other person. So obviously your perception then brings you to a state of consciousness of compassion. So the way we perceive has a great, is instrumental in bringing us to states of consciousness. Is that clear? One says, so much dukkha and has compassion, and the other one says, what an oath. Can't even say hello. And the same thing was happening, only two different states of consciousness were watching it. Now, the states of consciousness, which are bound up with our perception of things, are, of course, being trained. And this is what this sutta is about, and this is what we are on about. We want to train our perceptions so that they remain on a level of consciousness which does not bring us down to negativity. And then the training correctly. 
That doesn't mean that we no longer perceive the truth because the truth about everything that's worldly is always relative. And therefore, whatever we perceive it to be, our reaction to it can always remain on a positive level. It does never have to go down into the grave where we become unhappy. You don't have to look unhappy about it. <laughs> it's quite all right. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm quite sure. It's just a matter of perception. <laughs> so this is another aspect of our khandas, right? The four mental khandas. Now this is the way this goes. I have left out one step of the inside path because time is running out and I'll do that tomorrow and it can come come before or after the khandas it doesn't matter but I will repeat the first step is seeing mind and matter to be two interrelated interdependent but they're two second step seeing the rising and passing away but seeing it clearly not just saying I know I need to have a big deal with the Buddha that's not good enough you know seeing it for oneself noticing it and becoming aware how it is our whole life our whole life support our whole life it's all coming and going the whole thing and one day it's not going to come again it's just going and we'll come to that also so that's number two and there we will must we will become aware of the fact that anicca impermanence is concealed by continuity and go, go back over your life it's very interesting and see that was supposed to be all me but I'm, that me is completely lost so the Buddha comes to that also and the me in today that's going to be lost tomorrow so where is it really? and then using the mind as our meditation subject on the inside as the inside method to watch these four different um, mental aspects arise in us. Now, if we catch in our mind a, a feeling aspect, or we catch the perceiving aspect, or we catch the, men, the thought process, mental formation is the thought, or we catch the sense contact, it doesn't matter which one we catch. What we need to inquire is, is it permanent and watch it come and go and then watch the next one and then say to yourself why do I think that's mine why do I believe this to be mine this is the most important question because you won't say this is me but you think it's mine and because we think it's mine we have the identification process happening all this is what is mine we hang on to and we don't want to lose it and we don't want anybody to mess it up and we don't want anybody to threaten it and we want to keep it forever after and it should be quite safe if you think this house is yours that's how you're going to feel about it and it's the same thing 
with those four mental khandhas. Everybody thinks they own them. And therefore, if we own them, we must protect them, we must keep them, we can't let anybody threaten them, we can't let anybody get in there and do anything to them. They have to be absolutely wonderful and they have to be ours. For they're not going to comply with those requests ever. They have no interest in being anybody. They are universal and being universal, we also have part of them, but they don't belong to anybody. They just are. And this is the question we need to ask ourselves. Not only are they permanent or impermanent, it's very easy to find that they're impermanent, they come and they go. The next question is, if I think they're mine, which one do I own? The one that's just gone or the one that's yet to come? Or the one that just came? Well, if that's mine, the one that just has just come has already gone again, where has the me gone that owns that and is that feeling and that thought? If that thought and that or that feeling has already disappeared. The continuity of thought and feeling stops us from seeing that there is nobody in those thoughts or feelings, that they just come and go. And because we think they're mine, we have that identification process happening, it's mine, so it must be me if it's mine. And the me is come, has come, and gone, and come, and gone. So then the me consists of millions or billions of different thoughts, millions and billions of different feelings, and each one is supposed to be that person, and yet each one's different. So then in the end, we are billions of different people, each one of us. Schizophrenic, isn't it? So somewhere along the line, there's a thinking error. And that thinking error is so deeply embedded that we don't even think that that we think it, we, we feel it. Because the thinking is also a sense consciousness and all sense consciousness has feeling as the next step. So we don't just think this is me, we feel this is me. We've thought it long enough. So now comes this inquiry into those four aspects, into their impermanence and also into inquiring where is the me in them. Why do I identify with them? And <coughs> it is still one can understand that people identify with those which are pleasant. But to identify with those thoughts and feelings which are most unpleasant then produces a very unpleasant me. And lots of people have unpleasant me. They don't feel pleasant about themselves. Very unpleasant me because they identify with the thought or the feeling. And then all of a sudden you've got an unpleasant me. Well, if that is an utter foolishness, I don't know what is. Why should we have voluntarily an unpleasant me? I mean, I can well understand people like to have a pleasant me, but an unpleasant one? That goes too far. So, we need to investigate this. So this is another method for insight where we don't just investigate the body parts, here we investigate the mind parts. 
and we can go further with them, we can analyze them and break them up into more bits and pieces, but it seems to me that these four bits and pieces are already difficult enough and are sufficient to, to for investigation. So those are the three first steps of the insight method, and I'd like to recommend that you use them. And the mental states which the Buddha is talking about, which have to be without defilement, which are purified, and um, then um, and perf- uh, give purity and perfection of wisdom, can only arise through insight. They are vastly helped through the uh, absorption, but the real purity and perfection of wisdom, which means total insight, can only it can only come if we do the insight path also. So please um, make your choices and do these different ways of meditation, because there is plenty of time to investigate all of this. Right, now, any questions on this matter? Um, I'm going to ask this question, but I don't know if I'll be able to ask it, but maybe you can figure out what you can use. Um, when, you, can it, when you have uh, you know, a strong physical sensation like pain, and it, it could be experienced like you know, bliss. Yes. Is the thought process the same? Is the awareness of the bliss also living? Is also the next um, okay. So this is not really stupid. Then you have a, a long thought in your mind, like, oh gee, why did I do this? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. And there's maybe thousands of mind moments, mm-hmm. thousands of blips Lip. in that. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. get out of all that. 
we'll come to that later that's a little further ahead we haven't quite got there yet but that's the way it is but don't worry about it it's enough at this point to watch the thoughts being impermanent and not to identify with them because they've already gone you see the identification system that we have with these thoughts brings the idea of me and if you stop this identification system and just say which you know you talked about that to me that you don't identify with them then you don't have to think of that as me just thought Yes. Well, that's where the self comes in, in that continuity. Because now, for instance, the things you remember that happened in your life, right? Okay. Well, you think they happened to me. But in reality, they happened to somebody else. That person is, I mean, that person also thought it, she was me. So it was happening to a me. But it's got nothing to do with this me that's happening now and if you now become aware of a non-me of a non-self well I mean all that stuff happened to somebody who was a self so there's no connection anymore it's all broken the connection so the connection is only in the mind the mind makes a connection that was me and this is me now and yet you're thinking and feeling entirely different from that one to this one Yeah, sure. The whole thing's happening like that. So that would be part of the continuity. Sure. Because of that, there is this continuity. But the continuity is actually, now the, the, that's true, like what you're saying, on an absolute level. But on this relative level of continuity, you think ten years ago it was me, so it must be me now too. So I'm, I have all this stuff that happened ten years ago and I've got it, but nobody's got it. That, that was the, another question I was going to ask you. Yeah. That the continuity is preserved as the relative. Yes. Consciously the continuity is the ego. Yes, of course. The ego puts it up in order to... Yes, certainly. Because the ego puts it up. It's a defense system. It's a, it is a relative truth. In, in, in reality, ten years ago you were Barbara and it all happened to you. That's a relative truth. But in absolute truth, nothing. It's all gone. And that Barbara is no longer alive. Well, uh, you put, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that also pre- presents a problem always to people. If one sees the absolute, some people have a difficulty then to relate to the relative. There should be no difficulty at all. Because the absolute over- overrides everything. And to be in the relative, I mean, so it's like a visit to the puppet theater. There's no, uh, that's right. 
when you've seen the absolute, you visit the prophet here. There's no reason why you shouldn't go and visit it. Sometimes it's very interesting. Yes, that's right. You know, visit the Punch and Judy show and then clap your hands and it's all over. It's okay. It's all happening on that level. Continuity is relative. And the ego throws it up as a defense system because the ego wants somewhere to live. I mean, it needs a, needs a space to live. So that space that it gets is within that continuity because it says, well, look, this is all me. Hundred thousand different me's. Well, who can you, how can you doubt that I exist? Putting up a real, real fight. That's of course a fight that everybody has also with their concentration. Because the ego is always there. Yes. The karma carries, yes. The karma is only made by someone who believes that he's a me. Someone who doesn't believe he's a me doesn't make any karma. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, no karma is arahant. Non-returner, very slight, very tiny. Making karma. Oh, sure. Um, the... Uh, the necessity of uh, making good karma is um, very much uh, in the foreground for a meditator because that so that there's no regret or, or self-blame that really stops one's meditation. So good karma is a very important thing. And it does, sure, it carries through, but it because in, in the absolute reality there's no person, karma is also totally impersonal. It keeps on happening, certainly, it's it's cause and effect, that is actually the the next uh, insight step, cause and effect. It's cause and effect, but it's impersonal, but we are making it because we think we're doing something. But it's not crime and punishment, it's cause and effect. You see, sometimes people think that karma is crime and punishment, and you've done a crime, so you're going to get punished for it, but it's not like that, the Buddha said. It's just that you have put up certain causes and you get effects from them. It the sort of supports the um, ego as well, don't you think? The, the think feeling that you're an I? That you are? It, it supports the self in that you think that it's me, you're an I? Do you think the karma making supports the self? Yeah. No, it's the other way around. The self supports the karma making. You you. Oh, that there is a continuity, but you don't usually see that. Most people don't see their causes and effects. Very rarely. Very few people even see that they have put the cause in and are getting an effect. Very few people see that. I mean, very few people remember that they've been unkind to somebody and that's why somebody else is unkind to them. Very few people see that. The the theory of karma and and its resultants may have that effect on and that one thinks one is somebody, but the practice of it, it's the other way around. First, you know you are a self, and then you make karma. And that we see the two together, you know, what we have done, and the result of it, it's very rare. Very rare. 
you can think and see whether you can see in your life the two that belong together. It's not easy to find. Sometimes one can see it, but it's not easy. So, because the Buddha also said, you know, karma is like a spider's web. It's so interwoven, you can't find the beginning or end of the thread. That's why it's difficult. Hmm? I was just thinking about like meditation and start thinking. In meditation, yeah. you can see the effect. You can see the cause and effect of what? Ah, yes, yes, of course. Certainly, certainly, uh, if you uh, if you are, uh, are meditatively or contemplatively looking at it, it is possible, sure, but it isn't common. I mean, you can use it as a contemplation, see, yes, this happened, that's why I got this result, certainly. That's quite possible, but it isn't a common thing that happens every moment that we see the resultants. So it isn't so much that that supports our ego idea, it's more the other way around. Um, but the ego idea is particularly embedded in our ownership of the four mental khandhas, if we've given up the fifth one already, the body, if we don't think that this is me anymore. And if we haven't given that up, then it's embedded in the five, mental, uh, five khandhas, four mental ones, physical. That's where the I is uh, arising from particularly from the observer. Can you sort of, um, do you think we can control any of this? Like, we think we can control it, but actually there's no control at the point? Control what? The self. And what's happening in our mind. Is it just the result of karma? Or control what's in our minds. Yes, certainly we learn that. That's, well, that's the whole training that the Buddha is talking about. Through training, we change our perceptions. Some arise and others cease. Through training, which means through the training of, of concentration, we change our perception completely. The concentration in the meditation changes our perception into the higher, first the lower, then the higher jhanas. And because a mind which can concentrate enough to go into the higher jhanas is a mind that can concentrate on anything. And therefore, will will have the ability, at least uh, if there's some insight already, will have the ability not to voluntarily make itself unhappy. Because it controls where it's with it's concentration. So what if you have a meditative Like you said you can, who would want to make themselves voluntarily unpleasant? But I mean, a lot of people are like that. Oh, a person who has never meditated, I doubt very much that they would know what to do. I mean, most people need guidelines and instructions what to do. But the Buddha is, uh, Buddha's teachings is abundant in them. There's no limit to guidelines and instructions. And I, I try to, to think of as many and, and uh, uh, share as many as I can, you know, bring out. It's abundant in guidelines and instructions. I doubt very much that a person 
Well, you know, even that is not, a, this is a general statement which may not be true. I just met a lady the other day who's never meditated in her life. She's learning it now, trying to, hoping to, in the mostly evenings, who became aware of the fact one day that her mind was playing tricks on her, that she was so negative that she was becoming ill and she was getting very ill. She was having rheumatoid arthritis, which is very unpleasant. And she could see that her mind was doing, uh, was having something to do with it. And she did not go into meditation. She went into astrology and found out certain things that helped her a great deal to see this, what she was doing wrong. And then... I've forgotten how many years ago this was, but then when she heard me talk about meditation, she realized, yes, that's it, that's what I want to do. So she already had a beginning of it without the meditation. Um, And she said she did change her thinking process, yes. So she did have that already. Um, Not to the extent that she would have liked to, and which she's now trying to learn, but it's difficult, of course. She's quite elderly, and to concentrate is not easy, you know. But um, so there is the, the general statement of uh, we can't make uh, that, uh, you know, so general. It's possible. It's 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 a minority. There would be few people that become aware of it, but uh, it's possible. But a meditator must learn it. It's absolutely a must. Otherwise, there's no meditation. Meditator must learn to change the uh, negative state to the positive state in order to have the purification effect. And it it, it happens to every meditator. Every meditator purifies if he or she keeps going. Sure. Yes, yes, of course. Um, uh, These are, I think these are arbitrary uh, numbering in order to keep it in order so that you, you know, look at all of them. It seems far more likely that a mind which is investigative will see maybe two things or may see uh, impermanence first and then see, oh yes, mind and matter and may not even be aware of the fact having seen that. That's also possible. Um, but using it as to see impermanence better, it's not that step-by-step exact as it is written. Uh, that is more, it comes out of the Visuddhimagga, and the Visuddhimagga is a, a reference book um, written by Buddha Gosa in the 5th century in Sri Lanka. And uh, it is extremely detailed and analytical and everything goes one after another and one after the other. And so, in order not to get confused, I presume, so that we know all the steps, but they do not necessarily happen exactly that way. A mind which has uh, the intention of investigation will see these things. And sometimes three or four all at once. If you're contemplating on impermanence, will the insight come about naturally? One should hope so, yes. Are you doing it in meditation? 
informal sitting, yes. You don't have to. You can. It's not it's not that one you see what what this all is? These are tools. Tools to gain access to absolute reality. Which is hidden from us by a brick wall. Not by a veil, as we so li- like to say. It's a brick wall which is around us. And you need tools in order to make a hole into that brick wall. And the tools have to be sharp and one-pointed. Otherwise you can't get any hole into that brick wall. Now, the sharpness and the one-pointedness of the mind will be the tool to get through that brick wall. Now, some people have to first become absolutely convinced that there is a brick wall. So they have to do inquiry first before they even have any interest in sharpening the mind to the point where it may become a sufficiently good tool to get through. Other people are aware of that brick wall and say, I, I, I've had enough of this. I'm going to sharpen my mind to the point where I'm going to make a hole into it. Well, sharpening the mind to the one-pointedness is the concentration. And the only mind that really is sharp and concentrated and one-pointed is the one that can do the jhanas. Now, that um, necessity is there in order to have this tool which will break through. But while one is doing the one thing, when there's nothing to stop one from investigating where is, what does this brick wall consist of? Because that also helps one in making a hole in it. If I know what it consists of, well, it consists of the identification with the khandas, it consists of not seeing impermanence, it consists of all those things. So all of that can be done meditatively. It can be done, now the concentration cannot be done contemplatively, but uh, the uh, insight, the investigation of that brick wall can be done contemplatively, certainly, but it can be done meditatively in watching the the impermanence of all that there is. That is, in a meditation can bring about a very clear understanding. It can be done either way. But these are all different tools because that the mind, the sharp mind, yes, like a, you can maybe think of it as if it was a very sharpened, pointed steel, um, what, steel uh, dagger. Well, you might need a hammer to hammer that dagger through. Lots of tools needed. That's why the Buddha taught 40 different meditation methods. And all different. Nine cemetery meditations. So they're all different methods of meditation. And some are for insight and some are for calm. And the breath is particularly for calm. It's the main thing for calm. The others are mainly for insight. So they are all; these are all the tools. So they, that's also very good to do as a meditation. Is, is that quite clear? Okay. Yes. Uh, on earth, the mind can affect the body. Mm-hmm. Can the body affect the mind? Sure. For an unenlightened person, certainly. Mm. For an enlightened one, no. And the Buddha said that an, an unenlightened person has two doubts 
or two arrows that poke him, and the enlightened one only one. The two that poke the unenlightened one are body and mind, because the body aches and the mind goes, you know, unhappy and grieving, whereas the enlightened one also has a body that is, has aches and pains, but the mind no longer reacts. So for unenlightened people, certainly, the body is a source of uh, misery. And knowing that, it can be a very important point <coughs> in uh, recognizing dukkha and having the urgency to get out through insight. It can be helpful. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look inside of yourself and find any kind of dukkha which you may have had in the past or are having now, whatever it may be, small, medium or large, anything that is not totally satisfying or hurting unpleasant, anxiety-producing, distracting, anything that doesn't have a pleasant feeling to it. Find it, pinpoint it. And then, let compassion arise in yourself for the fact that there is Dukkha. Let this compassion fill you completely. Knowing that Dukkha arises again and again. Compassion based on the understanding it's difficult to be a human being that wherever we look there is a possibility <coughs> that Dukkha may arise 
let that compassion that you have have that wisdom in it think of specific people whom you know have Dukkha. Who have told you or where you can surmise that it's there. And have this compassion tinged with wisdom. for these people recognizing how difficult it is Think of any one specific person whom you find particularly difficult and see the dukkha in that person. Have your compassion. Feel that person. Now think of any specific person who you might think is acting wrongly and see the dukkha out of which that arises, that wrong action. And have your compassion fill that person.
Now think of anyone whom you might consider to have no dukkha at all, whom you might even envy for that, and recognize the fact that there is no existence without dukkha. and have compassion for that person too. let compassion for the difficulty of being fill you from head to toe and then let it flow out of you let it flow like a stream containing all your compassion to living beings everywhere. Recognizing that each and every one of them experiencing Dukkha, human or animal or any realm at all, Subtle dukkha or growth. Let your compassion reach out to people everywhere as far as your heart can reach. Let your compassion reach out to animals who are often suffering because of human beings. Think of all those occasions and feel for them and with them.
Let your compassion encircle the whole globe. Beings on it. Let it be like a pouring out of your heart to all beings. Recognizing your own difficulties and therefore knowing that everyone has them. Now recognize that the more you pour out compassion out of your heart, the more of it your heart will contain. Put your attention on that. let this compassion that your heart contains be directed towards yourself accepting caring embracing May beings everywhere have compassion in their hearts. 